The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Tim Seymour. He's there. <laughs> Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action shares of Netflix, Chipotle, and United Airlines. All three stocks on the move. Right now on earnings, we'll break down the quarter straight ahead. Plus, a crypto collapse, Bitcoin breaking below 30000 It is now on the brink of giving up all of its gains for the year. We'll tell you how our traders are playing this crypto carnage. And later, it's a wash. The one-name options traders are betting on for a breakdown when it reports results tomorrow after the bell. We start off with a Tuesday turnaround. Stocks rallying in a big way today. The S&P 500 recouping nearly all of yesterday's losses. It was the best day for the index since March. Ten of 11 S&P sectors ending the day in the green, led by materials and financials. And as stocks rallied, the bond market found some footing. The 10-year uh, yield breaking a four-day losing streak. But one of our traders says today's rally felt more panicked than yesterday's sell-off. Why, Dan? Yeah, Mel, we were talking about it last night at this very time. We said that sell-off felt very orderly. That late-day um, rally in the broad market obviously took a little pressure off from the lows. It felt like they could really break there. But when you see the sort of broad strength that you, you had today, and at least in the equity market, you say to yourself, wow, that really felt like a panic. And what happened to all those fears that caused what I thought was a very healthy sell-off? I'll just make two points. You know, you just mentioned yields, I think, up 70 bips from those lows. They were six month lows or seven bips, excuse me, um, intraday. Well, that may look kind of dramatic. It's not really. I mean, I think we have to remember that the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield is at 1.15 um, about 10 hours ago or so. So that's not particularly great, in my opinion. And then crude oil, which got destroyed yesterday. Um, also, not a great rally here. And I'll just remind everybody, the S&P and the Nasdaq and crude and yields, they're still in downtrends here. So we had this sharp kind of bounce here. Let's see how this plays out over the course of the week. I think we see lower lows. So, Guy, are you in the same camp as Dan, or, or does this make you think that maybe yesterday's sell-off wasn't fueled really by Delta variant, or that today, today's gains are just sort of flimsy? It's interesting. You know, my senior year in high school, during the Kennedy, you know, when he was, he was uh, campaigning for President 59, Dinah Washington, the big song we're all listening to is What a Difference a Day Makes. But I don't think today made all that much difference. I mean, 42.35 was the low yesterday. We talked about it with Courtney, how it bounced off the 50-day moving average in terms of the S&P. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of with Dan on this one. Today actually feels more panicked than yesterday, and I think it's going to sort of exhaust itself. I actually think we might have put in a low for 10-year yields. Um, this reversal today was very powerful in the TLT um, on big volume. It's going to be interesting to watch over the next couple of days, but my sense is, 
We're going to visit that uh, 50-day moving average again, not probably this week, but early next week. Oh, so the low for now, but we won't break it is what you're saying. We'll, we'll simply bounce off of that. No, I think we're, we're going to break it. I'm with Dan oh, okay. on this one. I do think we're going to break it. I think this week, you know, you might see a little <laughs> more giddy up to the upside, but I, I'm, I'm not convinced that yesterday's low was the low for the foreseeable future. I see. So if we did break below yesterday's low, Tim, that seems like that would be the floodgates for the markets to continue its sell-off. Yes, because it would be built off of the concept that the Delta variant is a bigger issue. And I'm leaving aside all social commentary here, but just talking about a market statement and what it means. And, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't. Um, and, and I think you know, what we've digested here is what an economy looks like when it's reopening. The risk to me is... is Look, that the economy comes back, uh, that we will have strength in the fall, we will have strength in the fourth, qu- fourth quarter, and that the risk is uh, the services part of, of, of the labor force has trouble coming back, the inflationary forces that we were very concerned about. But, but all of this, uh, I think, paints a very strong picture for equities, that you've got a Fed that, that now has the excuse of Delta variants to move slower. Um, it, it, what OPEC did two days ago um, was absolutely the right thing for the oil price, um, because, again, they are well aware of the inflationary impact. We talked yesterday. Some people thought um, bad timing to have Delta variants and an OPEC plus agreement. I, I think they did what they needed to do also. Again, if we're not hearing about energy prices uh, and you can get oil in 60 to 70 dollars, that's great overall. Again, I, I'd much rather be. But I agree with you because I want to be talking about a 10 year at 175 and listening to all the people that are complaining about that and that actually we're going to 2 percent and look out. Um, that's really what I think is is uh, uh, the scenario that uh, I'm not saying that's the probability scenario. I'm saying that's the scenario that I think you have a a much, much stronger argument. But either way, what came back today, anything that was cyclical, anything that would be having a great time at 175 was having a great time at 125 on the 10 year and then higher. Mm-hmm. So, Karen, so for a person who, who, you know, tuned out of the markets on Friday, came back today, you might think that, that we just stood at a standstill. Um, we're just a few basis points lower on the S&P 500, a few, uh, a few points lower on the S&P 500, a few basis points lower um, on, on the 10-year yield. And yet a lot has happened. So how do you, how do you interpret damage to the markets or, or how you're feeling, market sentiment, given what actually transpired yesterday and today? Well, you know, we think of the market as this monolithic thing, the market, the S&P 500. But if, if you look at various sectors, some of which I'm in, like financials, I mean, that was a pretty dramatic move, not just yesterday and today, but to the week ahead of that, uh, uh, leading up to that. So that's had a pretty big move down, way bigger than the 2 or 3% that the S&P was off at its lows yesterday. So there was that. There was the energy, which the guys talked about, which, of course, was, you know, a very, very dramatic move. So some of the industrials, um, those all seemed overdone to the downside. You know, I always say when things just start trading in integers, then it's sort of just people panicking. It's not about, oh, this company isn't worth that much anymore. I don't believe that the value of the companies in America changed that much from yesterday morning until today and, you know, a lot in the middle and then back to where we were. I don't that doesn't make sense to me. So I feel like it was just kind of panicky yesterday. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe that's right. Panicky today to the other side. But I'm still just looking for value. And we're we are in earnings season right now. So Mm -hmm. the thing that I like to use most to peg valuation on, we'll be getting more info on. So I don't know. I'm not too I don't get 
too worked up over it. I didn't do a lot of buying. I did no selling. I didn't do a lot of buying at all. Um, I just kind of watched. I want to see what companies report. Next week, right. we have very big, you know, FANG earnings. So we'll see what the, what the actual data tells us from companies. Yeah, and, and you almost sort of wish that earnings season were a couple of weeks delayed or something to see the company commentary after a couple more weeks of Delta variant spread, not to say that it's going to get worse, but even to see if it's better. Chipotle's CEO, we'll talk about Chipotle's earnings results, talked about no impact so far in the dining room, that the dining room 70% recovered, no impact so far because of Delta variant. But it's early days, Guy, in terms of this uptick in cases. So it's great that we have earnings season. Do you think we're going to get enough information for markets to be like, you know what, the company talked about it and they, they don't see an impact so far. So I'm, I'm good with where they're trading. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, what type of, if we're going to see it in the commentary or if they're going to sort of look past it. That, I think Karen makes a great point. My sense is there'll be certain companies that absolutely bring it up. Um, again, maybe it's a form of air cover. We will see. Again, I think the last two days were fascinating. It flushed a lot of things out. Um, I, again, I will say that the moving it's all about the moving yields. It's all about the moving the dollar. And you might have finally seen a capitulatory move in terms of yields to the downside. And maybe we've uh, t- taken in the next leg higher. Now, with that said, I'm not sure what that means for equities. You can make a compelling case that that's bullish. I think if we do go back to that 175 level, the market's not going to like it all that much. And it might come on the heels of the fang earnings that Dan's talked about now for quite some time. If you go back towards 1-1 or below 1, Dan, uh, the market's not going to like it either, is, is my guess. Yeah, I, I think as far as a lot of investors, the pain trade was clearly lower on rates and they didn't know what to do with it. I just think it's important to remember when they were going up in the first quarter of the year, the mega cap or super cap tech names. We call them F MAGA, Karen. You keep referring to, to FANG, but we call them F MAGA here. Um, you know, those are nearly $10 trillion. Yeah, nearly $10 trillion in market cap. We know that they make up nearly 25% of the S&P 500 and nearly half of the NASDAQ 100. And, you know, I just think about, like, the breakouts that we saw in the last two weeks. Amazon and Apple finally played a little catch-up. They gained about a trillion dollars in market cap since late May, and they failed. Those breakouts failed. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't re-break out again, but the, the bar has been raised dramatically for all of those names, and we've talked about the rotation. We talked about the underperformance in small caps and a lot of these sectors um, within the S&P 500 over the last few months. And that's where a lot of strategists said we've had a correction. But it is wholly unnatural that five or six stocks can keep these massive indices levitating despite what's going on under the hood. And then despite what you're just saying about rates, because right now rates are telling investors something, at least in the stock market, that they don't want to hear. They're ignoring. And that's what was reflected yesterday. So I just don't believe you can reverse that sentiment in 24 hours. I, OK, I, I get that. But but if if rates are telling a story that there is going to be yeah. economic trouble ahead or that Delta variant will, in fact, have an impact, isn't that the exact cocktail that propelled tech stocks higher during the pandemic? I mean, isn't that the scenario that would, in yeah. fact, get them to be still your F mega complex, the leadership yeah. in the market still? But we're that much further along, Mel. And, and now what all of those of companies price. are happening. 
Yeah, and investors are now starting to price in decelerating second half 2021 and then what like 2022 looks like. So to me, we're just in a different spot. And I think it's really important to remember, Miller said that black hole that we were in last February, March, April. Well, we came out of that pretty clearly and we know what the pandemic winners are. But the tam- pandemic winners in the stock market, that doesn't mean that they're going to be the same in the back half of this year and as we come out of this. And just again, what is the rates telling us the rates have been telling us since late march that second half growth projections were too high that's it and they were telling you that this inflation thing that everyone's yelling about isn't going to be the sort of thing that everyone thinks it's going to be so to me you know i think it all makes sense i just think the only thing that doesn't make sense right here is the s p 500 and the nasdaq 100 all right well despite today's comeback one long time uh, market bull is not sounding the all clear julian emmanuel is btig's chief equity and derivatives strategy julian always great to see you um, so what do you make of all this in the past couple of days? What happened? Well, the first thing we'll say is if the last three days haven't proven whether you're a stock investor or a bond investor, the utility of options, particularly when the VIX uh, last week was trading in the teens, there's never going to be a time that proves it. Whether you're thinking about protecting the downside or trying to control your emotions in some of these stocks that have run a long way and look like they could run further uh, to prevent FOMO. From our point of view, the market is responding to uh, the climb down in yields uh, with a delay the same way it did uh, probably before the pandemic, I think is, is the right way. But clearly the science has moved much further. The threat is not there uh, to the anywhere the degree that it was uh, this time last February or so, let's say. Um, And the expectation is that we are going to have yields turn back higher. The economy is going to reopen, obviously not with uh, uh, perhaps the vigor that was expected several weeks ago, but it's going to happen nonetheless. And so to us, what we're looking for is stabilization in the cyclical plays. Today's action in, in that respect was good. But we also think, like you've talked about uh, a little bit uh, a few moments ago, that you may have some trouble if yields turn around in terms of the reaction uh, from technology stocks, which have really carried uh, the load for the last several months. So yesterday was a blip. No, yesterday was basically something that we should expect, again, both to the upside and the downside. The market is just much less certain. And if you think about it, we're not going to have a good idea about what exactly the Delta variant means Mm -hmm. until schools start reopening. Uh, We're going to have that uh, start to happen in the next several weeks, but it isn't going to happen really in earnest till after Labor Day, when in theory, the labor force comes back and normalizes that situation. So there's this uncertainty overhang that to us says you're going to have this kind of trading for quite some time and right. negative news of whatever we might get is likely to set the market back within that context. It's interesting, Julian, because it sounds like there are a lot of unknowns in your view, and rightfully so. There's so much about this disease that we're, we're learning as we go, basically, and, and the effectiveness of vaccines with this new variant. Um, and saying that, you know, not till after Labor Day, not till schools reopen, et cetera, et cetera. And yet you're over, overall bullish still to the end of the year. You want to go back into cyclicals. How do you reconcile that? Because to me, that uh, the risk reward sounds pretty balanced unless you really believe that the variant is, is not ultimately going to be an issue. And so that's again, science. That's hard to, that's right, hard to handicap. That, 
That's right. That's right. So from our point of view, the near term looks problematic. Okay, and when I say problematic, uh, we're expecting a test of 4,000 between now and the end of the third quarter. But there's no denying that we have put into motion the seeds of a very long-lasting, vigorous economic recovery. And we measure that by the ISMs. When you've seen ISMs over 60, as we've had uh, that really started the year, the long-term message is that the bull market is uh, going to top two years out in front of us and that you're not likely to have a recession for almost three years. And when we think about it, uh, we could see over the next 24 months a further advance on the order of 30 to 50 percent. Wow. Julian, thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Julian Emanuel, BTIG. Tim Seymour, you agree with Julian? Still go all in and not all in. Still go in to oil trades, into material trades? Well, I, I do think that we're at a place where the, the economic strength is, is very much uh, it belies what the stocks have done over the last six to eight weeks. We've talked a lot about that. They've, the stocks even led the commodities. I, my view is we're, we're, being, we're way overthinking this one, okay? Um, until the Fed starts tapering, you're buying equities. And there's absolutely no sign that the Fed is going to change gears anytime soon. Delta variance gives them ground cover. So uh, I, I understand we're looking at the global growth dynamic. I understand that we're actually looking at the decline in yields as, as maybe, you know, being the harbinger of something uh, more sinister. But again, uh, I, and I, I tend not to get overly righteous on the market breadth or lack thereof. If we're talking about investors, um, there's a lot of liquidity sloshing around. There's a retail investor that's been, uh, I think, think that, that basically the mentality is you're buying every dip and until something happens, that's what they're going to do. So it's all about liquidity. Uh, I do think earnings are going to be uh, extremely strong in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. And based upon the strength of, of those that outperformed the first quarter, you're going to see their numbers in the second quarter be even better. I think that's a really interesting observation in sort of a perverse silver lining to an uptick in cases overall in in COVID in its variant guy that it gives the Fed cover not to do anything to keep things as status quo, which would be good for the markets, except to Dan's point, we have come a long way since the start of the pandemic in terms of where the markets are. So how do you put those two things together? No, I think Tim makes a great point. I mean, obviously, the move down in yields has given the Fed, you know, it's given them a lot of air cover for a lot of different things. I will, I will say this, and I'll let's sort of shine a different light on this thing. You know, the United States is still the biggest economy on the planet, last I looked. I would submit, maybe correctly, incorrectly, that 10-year yields, which should be the most liquid asset or instrument on the planet, should not, in my opinion, move five, six, eight basis points a day, actually within hours. It's, it's mind-boggling to me the volatility we're seeing in the 10-year yields. Now, that was the precursor to equity volatility back, if you remember, January, February of 2020. We'll see if that's the case now. But bond volatility, to me, is too severe, and I think it's going to manifest itself in equity volatility at some point. All right. We are developing. Uh, we are following a developing story on J&J's COVID vaccine. Let's get to Meg Terrell with all the details. Meg. Hey, Melissa, a new study out of a lab at NYU, not yet peer reviewed, looked at uh, the antibody levels generated by the J&J vaccine and compared that with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and looked at uh, them against the variants and suggests that the J&J single shot vaccine may lose efficacy against the Delta variant, at least against infection. Now, uh, again, this has not been peer reviewed. 
And it also goes against the company's own studies, which suggest that the vaccine should hold up against the Delta variant. But the authors of this NYU study suggest that this means a booster dose uh, for the J&J vaccine, either of another J&J shot or of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, uh, may be something that would be important to consider. Uh, Johnson & Johnson giving us a statement uh, tonight saying there are additional things to look at, including the T-cell response that this doesn't take into consideration. Also noting, quote, company data demonstrated the J&J single-shot vaccine generated strong persistent activity against the rapidly spreading Delta variant. Uh, Melissa, of course, 13 million Americans have received the J&J shot. There will be a lot of questions about whether they need booster doses as there already have been. We are expecting J&J's own two-shot data sometime this summer. Mel? Meg, 13 million Americans with the J&J vaccine compared to, you know, ballpark estimate on the Pfizer and Moderna. A total 160 million people vaccinated in the U.S., so 13 wow. million who got the J&J shot is the, yeah, vast minority. Okay. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest on all this. Um, it is worth noting Johnson & Johnson disputes that um, study, which is not peer-reviewed, just to, to underscore that, Karen. But still, I mean, there are a lot of concerns these days. You see, you know, places like Los Angeles reinstate some mask mandates. So it does feel like there is this uncertainty out there at this moment in time when it comes to this variant, which can't be good for markets. It can't be good, but I don't know how bad it will be. I think this mm. is very different than where we were uh, prior to November of last year, where we had no vaccine, right? And so we know that we do have a way to materially help this situation if it gets worse. And what we're seeing is uh, that it's a more, uh, for those who are unvaccinated, this is more of an issue. Perhaps that moves the needle and makes pe more people be inclined to get the vaccination. I don't know, but I don't think it presents the threat anywhere remotely close to the threat that we saw before. So I think we will look back on this as somewhat of a blip, but I don't think that this sort of uh, ruins the recovery, which I still think will be strong. Okay. Coming up, we've got earnings alerts on Chipotle, United Airlines and Netflix. All three stocks on the move in the after hours will break down how our traders are playing these names. And later, a crypto collapse, Bitcoin crashing below $30,000. So is there more pain ahead for this trade? Stay with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts on Chipotle and United Airlines, both stocks on the move in the after-hour session. Full team coverage standing by to break down the reports. Phil all over United. We kick things off with Kate Rogers on Chipotle. Hey, Kate. 
Hey, Melissa, the stock moving higher on this strong second quarter for Chipotle. EPS beat by nearly a dollar. Revenues right in line for the quarter. Same store sales also increased 31.2%. That was a beat. Restaurant margins, 24.5%, nearly double what they were this quarter last year. Also the highest level since Q3 of 2015. Thanks to menu price increases, lower beef costs, and fewer promotions taking place during the quarter. Digital sales increasing 10.5%, making up nearly half of all sales. Digital Pickup orders, which are the company's highest margins, uh, sales are also gaining traction. Chipotle also held on to about 80% of digital gains, even as in-person dining increased. CEO Brian Nichols said on the call that the business has also recovered about 70% of in-store sales, and its loyalty program now has more than 23 million members. Menu items, cauliflower rice and quesadillas, are both performing well. Smoked brisket has now passed the company's stage gate process for testing, and despite ongoing uncertainty with COVID, if current trends continue, comps are projected to increase low to mid double digit range in Q3. Nickel also sounding upbeat on the labor front on the call, noting the company hired thousands of workers at its career day, which took place last week. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. Guy Dami, if you had to pick two words to characterize this Chipotle quarter, what would they be? <laughs> Fantastic. No, I know what the words are. I know what they are. It's burrito blowout. It's absolutely burrito blowout. I mean, we've been talking about this for seemingly forever. And kudos to Raymond James, who I think on June 14th, when the stock was trading 1300 they upgraded it to a strong buy. I don't know. We really haven't wavered on this one, Mel. People will point to valuation. It's still trading, I think, close to 50 times next year's numbers. But you know what? They're growing into the valuation. This is a great quarter. If you want a nitpick, which I'm really not sure what that is. I think you buy nitpickers in like the Acme or something. It would be in terms of operating margins. Came in a little light at 13%, but there's a, really a lot to like here. And I think the stock can continue to grind higher. I mean, this is one of the winners out of the pandemic. So if there is any sort of Delta variant uptick, I don't know, Dan, I don't know if that would really impact the stock, which really did well digitally um, without people in their dining room. Yeah, they did. Um, you know, listen, I know these guys would, would hit this, is that this company is expected in 2022 and 2023 to grow sales greater than, tw- well, great grow earnings 25% plus and sales about 13% with margins improving each year, expected to improve. So, you know, the valuation is always going to be tough, but those are the sorts of trends you want to see. I just go back to this. I, you know, this is not the sort of stock that I buy. It had this massive, massive run off of 1300 back in May. Guy, I think the other night had McDonald's um, as one of his uh, final trades there. That thing's been consolidating the, uh, you know, all the trends that I think they're benefiting Chipotle benefits McDonald's. I'd rather play that for a breakout. All right, let's move on to United Airlines. The stock is a little bit lower on results. Let's get the Phil LeBeau with the numbers. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa. United coming in line with expectations, posting a Q3 loss of $3.91 a share. Again, that was the estimate that was out there on the street. The revenue coming in a little better than expected at $5.47 billion. When you look at the second quarter, a couple of things stand out. First of all, corporate travel down 65 to 70 percent. That was roughly what most people were expecting. And then you have capacity down 46 percent. Why do we mention capacity? Look at the increase in capacity for the third quarter. When you look at their guidance, it's going to be improving substantially, down 26 percent. They do say that corporate travel bookings are improving, though they're not giving us exact metrics. Expect that to come up on the conference call tomorrow. But most importantly, United now expects sustained pre-tax profitability, a pre-tax profit in Q3 as well as in Q4. 
If you're looking at the shares right now and you're saying, well, why are they a little bit lower after hours? A number of factors here. One that might be impacting it is that if you look at their Q3 cost per available seat mile, stripping out fuel costs, profit sharing, a number of other special items, it's up 17% in the third quarter relative to the third quarter of 2019. So there are higher costs that are going to be weighing just a little bit on United in the third quarter. Don't forget, tomorrow morning, On Squawk Box, an exclusive interview with CEO Scott Kirby. You do not want to miss what he has to say about the outlook for the third quarter. Most importantly, what impact, if any, is United saying because of the Delta variant spreading around the country? We heard from Delta last week. It said that it's not seeing any impact. Let's hear what Scott Kirby has to say about that, as well as a number of other topics in terms of the outlook. Phil, up 17% on Chasm X fuel seems to be, you know, not significant, but it's 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 sizable. And so, do you do we know what sizable. that is mostly? Is it labor? There's a number of it? things in there. You've got the triple seven, which they don't have those uh-huh. back in service yet. Remember, they pulled those out of service while they were doing the work on the Pratt and Whitney engines following the Pratt and Whitney uh, engine incident over uh, Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I think that was in Q1, early Q2. Um, that's got uh, that's one headwind that is there. You also have shorter lengths. Uh, for flights because it's so much emphasis on the domestic schedule. You don't have much long-haul international. As a result, that is going to drive up your cost a little bit. So those are some of the factors that are there. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil Um Tim Seymour, where do you go with this trade? I tell you what, I think airlines look really interesting here. I, I think this third quarter uh, outlook is also has to be conservative. I, look, look at the trends we're seeing. And Julian talked about what we're going to see after everyone goes back post Labor Day. And yes, there are fear that COVID variants, uh, Delta variants could 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 peak. Um, but I, look what airlines have done as trading stocks. I'll, I'll call them that more than I will call them investments. And that's well pre-COVID that you've seen that airline stocks. United's come down from almost 60 bucks all the way down into these numbers. It's it's ridden the down momentum of, of the market, but especially focused on growth. And, and look, I, I you can't expect the world to come back in September uh, to have the inflation. And I know this isn't a consensus view, but um, airlines are going to start to see the front of the bus recover. Um, they priced in a lot of bad news. They priced in a lot of cyclicality like every other cyclical sector in the last six weeks. I think we're at the, the, you know, the bottom of that sentiment right now. Airlines don't have any reason to be overly dramatic here. Those cost increases are sometimes are, are also somewhat related to cost of capital. Uh, and that's something that I think is you know, to be watched. But um, ultimately, those, you know, a lot of the airlines are benefiting from also a relief in energy prices. And I think that's something also that they're not going to get much credit for in the short term. Karen? You know, it was interesting. They had a analyst day, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago. It feels like a lot of things, three weeks ago. It feels like a lot of things have changed since then. But if you think longer term, they sort of lay out how they can get to more profitability from where they were pre-pandemic. Even uh, So that that's interesting to me. So I have been out of airlines for a long, long time. I'm sort of inclined to look at them again. I think this uh, this fear in the short term of, you know, as, as Phil and Tim said, they have, uh, you know, high margin business that they're not getting right now, international travel, corporate travel, that ultimately I think will come back. So I will look again. I think it's starting to get interesting. All right. The earnings keep rolling in. Netflix is well off its after hours lows after reporting a miss. Let's get to Julia Borston with the details. Julia. 
Well, Melissa, Netflix's second quarter subscriber editions did exceed its own guidance, but the company's guidance of three and a half million subscriber editions in the third quarter, that was two million short of analysts' expectations. And signs of market saturation in its biggest market in the U.S. and Canada, the company actually lost 430,000 subscribers before Q1, between Q1 and Q2. Now, the stock did initially drop, but it turned around. Now it's in the green, and that's likely thanks to the company explaining its plan for a new potential growth driver, and that is games. Saying letter to shareholders, quote, we view gaming as another new content category for us, similar to our expansion into original films, animation, and unscripted TV. Games will be included in members' Netflix subscription at no additional cost, similar to films and series. Initially, we'll be primarily focused on games for mobile devices. Now, the company also saying it's spent about $8 billion in cash on content just so far this year. It's up 41% from the year earlier period. And they expect a long runway of increasing investment across all of its content categories. But now that they're a decade into original programming, now's the time to try games. Co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos also weighing in on all the media consolidation we've seen. They say they don't think it's impacted their growth and they don't view any assets as must-have, at least not right now, Melissa. All right, Julia, thank you, Julia Borson. Let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, good to see you. Hi, Melissa. Pay sub, paid subgrowth, that was what you, you pinpointed, you nitpicked for this quarter. Nitpicked. Uh, you know, I think you really need to think about the business and the stock. The business is doing really well. Paid sub ads up 9%. The guidance was for 9%. Even with that guide down, it still was 9%. This is off some incredibly difficult comps. And so I think give them credit. Also, engagement up 17% year over year from the pre-pandemic levels. What that tells me, Melissa, is that more people have gotten uh, essentially hooked on Netflix it is a testimony of their great content. And I want to kind of stop that uh, thought on business and switch to what I think is an important topic uh, that Julia brought up in terms of the stock and the growth piece to this. Uh, ultimately, is uh, that is a question for any tech company. How are you going to continue to grow? Netflix needs to answer that in a more profound way because they trade at about a two times uh, multiple relative to the rest of FANG. And I, I have some questions about this gaming opportunity. When Julia was talking about that and reading the quotes, it sounds really good. But ultimately, for I think gaming to be successful, uh, Netflix needs to answer a question about their identity. And ultimately, video to me is different than gaming. They put it both in the content category. And I would ask this question is, if you look at companies like Electronic Arts and uh, Take-Two, uh, are they going to be producing movies? And the answer is probably not. Do you think, do you have any sense that Netflix would have to spend money on gaming content or that they partnership with a developer of games? I mean, how does this get, is this just another thing for, for Netflix to spend money on? Unclear about what the initial approach is going to be. They're doing the interview right now, and we'll mm -hmm. see, I'm sure, some commentary about that. I've asked myself the same question. The comments that they have leave that open-ended, if they're going to come out with their original gaming content or that they will license gaming from other uh, players. I think that uh, Netflix, what they've done exceptionally well is to do original content. So my guess is they may start with a catalog of video games similar to what they did in video, with streaming and may uh, evolve that into uh, their original gaming uh, content. 
And uh, you know, if they talk about a 10-year investment phase, it probably is around that, building original content, original gaming so, content. Bottom line, Gene, the business is great, but it may not actually deserve a growth multiple at this stage in the game. Exactly. Effectively, yeah. nothing's changed. Uh, stock's up 8% in the past year. Mm -hmm. Point of reference, Apple's up 50%. I think that speaks to the investors and how they think about the long-term growth rate. We're all going to continue to enjoy Netflix. Uh, however, I don't think that investors will uh, uh, benefit appropriately. All right, Gene, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Dan Nathan, do you agree with Gene? Why, I mean, do you think gaming could, could be it, could be the growth vehicle for Netflix? I think it really comes down to how much they have to spend to do it. Obviously, the stock had, um, you know, the, there was a lot of fits and starts over the last 10 years when they started doing original content and the amount I think um, they were spending is upwards of 15, 16, 17 billion dollars. So Julia just said they're going to spend 8 billion on original content this year. I don't know how you could build out a gaming platform and not do it or make other acquisitions the way Amazon um, has with Twitch and that sort of thing. So I would suspect they make some acquisitions. But here's a good idea. Netflix is literally like the original the OG meme stock of the last 10 years. Why don't they just go out and buy GameStop and buy AMC? And then they got the movies wow. and they got the GameStop thing <laughs> covered, man. I mean, come on, right? That That is, that's genius. <laughs> that would be quite a story. Read, call me. Yeah. <laughs> guy Adami, what do you think of, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down to this guy. And, and Gene brought it up. Apple's up 50% versus Netflix's 8% yeah. gain in the year. So would you rather at this point? What, would you rather Apple or Netflix? Yes. Wow. You know what? I'd have to. I, well, I, just on the back of that performance, I know you think I'm going to say Netflix. I'm not. I think you got to stay with Apple here. That's proven itself. And the quarter is probably going to be ridiculous. Tim has pointed out correctly, by the way, that Netflix has basically gone nowhere since this time. Actually, before this time, it was sort of the spring of last year. It's been in this 485 550 range and we're smack in the middle of it i will say one thing uh never bet against reed hastings number one so if he's getting into gaming he's doing it for the right reasons then he sees opportunity and number two this quarter if you look at underneath the hood there's a lot of things you could sell netflix on this quarter on the back of and they're not which is a bit of a tell needs mm. to get above that previous all-time high hasn't been able to do it for a while but this is actually a pretty good sign in my opinion for netflix all right. Up next, Bitcoin breaking below $30,000. And tomorrow could be a major moment for the crypto craze. We'll tell you why. Plus, Peloton cruising higher after inking a major deal with United Healthcare. We'll give you the details. Much more Fast Money right after this. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a Bitcoin breakdown on our hands, a cryptocurrency falling below the $30,000 mark for the first time since June 22nd of last year. Grayscale Bitcoin trust lockup expirations putting major pressure on Bitcoin in recent days. Lockups will expire for more than 40,000 shares by the end of this month. The single largest unlock worth 16,000 Bitcoin took effect on Monday. And by the way, keep a close eye on things tomorrow. We're going to hear from Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and Arx Kathy Wood, all three of them speaking together. 
at the B Word Bitcoin conference. Tim Seymour, if these two evangelists in Dorsey and, and Wood can convince Elon Musk even on IOTA back to Bitcoin or yeah. other crypto, I mean, that could have a major impact. It, it could. It, it, it's also, you know, really troubling for an asset class to be so reliant against you know, the, the whims of someone that's really been known to say almost anything. Um, so it, it's a little troubling. I, I, I will say, I, I think, you know, the some of the dynamics around the asset class, especially around Bitcoin and, and even broader crypto, um, nothing has changed. Right. So so if you really believe that the reasons that people were bullish on the way up were intact, I don't think that there's anything that's changed, especially, you know, not central bank currents, uh, central banks, fiat currencies um, and all the dynamics around kind of, you know, global digital payments and blockchain. Um, meanwhile, blockchain and other forms of, of kind of analyzing and, and actually securing assets on a digital format um, is, is growing in, in foundation. Um, bulls will also say, I mean, look at look at Ethereum, which is down, I don't know, 60 percent from the highs. Um, they will point out that it's still outperformed the S&P by you know, 450 percent in the last year. So um, it's been a heroic fall from grace, um, mm-hmm. but it's still for a lot of the proponents, a the type of volatility that you should expect. And they'd be very happy with the year over year results if you ask them this is where they'd be. If the bull case is still intact, Karen, and you you own Bitcoin. And so I'm assuming that you mm-hmm. believe the bull case is intact. Then doesn't this just prove that Bitcoin is primarily traded on um, sentiment? Yes. I mean, what's involved in sentiment, though? I think everything sort of trades on sentiment. But I think the sentiment here is there was sort of the fear of missing out for all the institutions as it went up and up and up. And, you know, that they had none in their portfolio. Um, I don't know if that's changed or if we're still going to see that money come in. That's of interest to me. But to the extent that Bitcoin was seen as an inflation hedge and the fears about inflation are dying down, it would make sense that Bitcoin would be dying down or that, you know, the need to own it. Mm -hmm. So I I think that it's obviously a very, very volatile asset class. I'm long. I'm staying long every once in a while. I take some money off the table. I wouldn't be taking it off now. I have no idea where it could go. Some some assets you think, wow, it can't move more than X percent. This one, (laughs) almost any number it can move. But the longer term, I think the story is still intact. So I'm staying long. Up next, we're trading the Peloton pop. The stock is up 5% in just the past week. We'll dive into that trade next. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is speaking with the CEO of software company Qualtrics on the back of their results. Catch the full interview top of the hour on Mad Money. All right, check out shares of Peloton. Topping the tape in today's session, the fitness company inking a deal with United Health to offer millions of its members free access to Peloton's fitness classes. Shares climbing more than 6%. Is that 6% ephemeral guy or is this a good thing? Yeah, I don't know how to spell ephemeral. But Mel, what was, do you remember what day uh, Cinco de Mayo was this year? Was it May 5th this year? I think it might have been. I believe I have to check my calendar. Yep, it's May 5th. Yep, I'll check my calendar. Yeah. You know, why do I mention, why do you mention that guy? That's a good question, Melms, because that day, I remember clear as day, it was an 89 million share day, stock traded down to 81 and a half. We talked about it on the show. We said, this was the flush you've been waiting for, capitulatory selling. And that proved to be the case. You can go back and look if you'd like. Well, here at 125, we're basically at a 50% retracement of that low. 
and the all-time high. Great news. Uh, the stock has obviously been on a beeline higher. But I'm inclined to take profits on this news at the 125 level and look for a pullback into the low 100s. Hmm. Dan, you get hooked on the software. I mean, that's, that's great for the company. That's just all margin there. Yeah, I think uh, history of these sorts of deals will show that you're not going to have millions of people signing up and using this sort of thing. That's just my guess. I think there's a lot of alternatives. And I would say that guy nailed it. It was at the time was the tread recall. The stock was careening lower. He said, you buy it here um, in the 80s or the low 80s or so. It's rallied more than 50 percent since then. And I'll just say one thing. Throw a, a, a one year chart. This thing looks like a textbook head and shoulders top. So for some of you guys who like to lean into some of those things, playing for a retrace of some of that move from the May lows um, makes some sense to me here. All right, coming up, Whirlpool earnings on deck tomorrow. Option trades are betting the stock could get washed up on results. We'll break down the action next. Welcome back. Whirlpool shares uh, going for a spin today. That company reports earnings tomorrow after the bell and when options traders betting the stock could get washed out. After that number hits the tape, let's bring in Tony Zhang. Tony, what are you seeing? Yeah, so Whirlpool doesn't trade very actively, but today more than three and a half times the average volume traded. And a lot of them were actually puts that outpaced calls almost two to one. Despite beating earnings over the past six quarters, one particularly very bearish trade did stand out. Now, the options market right now is implying about a five and a half percent move over the next three days versus the last four quarter average of about 4.7%. So the options market is implying a fairly sizable move compared to history. And the trade structure that we saw here today was a th a 1,700 contracts of the July 23rd 210 puts were purchased for an average price of about $4.65. So this is a contract that expires this Friday. So the trader in this particular case laid out almost $800,000 in premium to bet that Whirlpool will be lower by at least 4% over the next three days. But meaningfully, the stock has to be closer to about $200 or about 6% lower for this trade structure to pay about a one-to-one -one risk reward ratio on the $800,000 that was put at risk on this trade. All right. Thanks for that, Tony. Tony Zhang, uh, Tim Seymour, you actually fast pitched this one. So you've been on board this trade for a I, while. I did. I did. I, I'm not in the name now. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm hoping for some bearish activity to get back in. I don't mm -hmm. think the trends have changed for the company. I think uh, it's also seeing a lot of relief in the inventory dynamics and, and some of the supply chain issues that were holding back what was uh, fantastic demand. I think demand is still there. Valuation, you know, nine Two, 9.2 times trailing. Uh, very attractive, I think. I think, again, we've seen a lot of pain in the industrials. This one's pulled back 20% or so. Um, let's get through these earnings, and I think let's rebuild a position. Karen, what do you think? Well, I'm long. I, I would buy more if they reported earnings that were disappointing. It's not like the bar is set so high when you have a PE multiple as low as, you know, Tim was at high single digits. So, you know, I think that they have the rest of the world as a sort of to come to to uh, improve their earnings over the next year or two. They seem very, very confident last time. And why would you do that if you really didn't have a great sense beyond looking just the one quarter in front of you? So I'm long going in. I will add if they miss, assuming they don't miss in a way that uh, is way out of the norm. Otherwise, good, I would add. Yeah. That's a good point on the rest of the world. If the U.S. is on the forefront in terms of the recovery and the rest of the world is still to come guy, like areas like Latin America where Whirlpool is very, very strong, um, then that should bear fruit in future quarters. 
That's a way to play it. And, you know, dishwasher in my house is me, but those Whirlpool suckers <laughs> are fantastic. And I think, I think to Tim's point, I think in a, in a bizarre way you're hoping for a miss, hoping the stock trades down about 198 or so. Then I think you buy it with both hands. And my sense is, you know, the option purchaser that Tony spoke to, they might in our world sort of buy the double, as they say. So take advantage of that bearish bet and then get long on a sell-off. So if you're looking at this, I think 198 would be a tremendous entry point if it gets there. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got your final trades. trade around the horn we go tim seymour amazingly em earlier this week set a relative 10-year low to the s p but i think the eem bounced heroically today off the 200 like a lot did uh, but i think this is a trade that looks interesting here if the dollar is not in your face karen yes so i didn't say at the top of the show welcome back we missed you when you leave us with the babysitters who are great but they're not you so I'm glad you're back. You know who else isn't leaving? Jamie Dimon. Got some options to stay. I love that. JPM. <laughs> Dan Nathan. Yeah, so the air came out of Moderna a little bit today after that epic run. The Johnson & Johnson news doesn't sound great, but Pfizer closed at a new 2021 high. I like Pfizer on the breakout here. Guy Dami. Delta Airlines, sister. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.